That's a neat crossing. It's not a great header from Unsworth, but that's a fantastic volley from Fowler. What a goal! He was almost in the air when he struck that ball. Look at that. That's how to volley a ball. Hello and welcome to another anniversary special of the Anfield Central podcast, where we take a look back at 20 years since Liverpool won the treble of the League Cup, UEFA Cup and FA Cup. And this week we're looking at the finisher, God himself, Robbie Fowler. And if we're talking about God, I'm joined by my two disciples, James and Max. How are we doing, guys? <laughs> I, for one, am not happy to take the disciple <laughs> title. No, I'm not having this. <laughs> been working on that intro uh, all day. Uh, yeah. You were so happy with yourself, <laughs> aren't you? But, but, just yeah, sitting well, there grinning at your piece of paper, just going, I've done it. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and Robbie Fowler, one of the club's, you know, probably greatest ever players, I'm sure we can agree on that. Um, looking at his career, he's a Liverpool lad born and bred. He came through the academy. His first spell at the club was from you know, 1993 through till 2001, which the treble winning season was actually his final full season in his first spell with the club. Do we reckon that fans regard Robbie in a higher regard as maybe other forwards we had due to his roots to, to Liverpool and the way he came through the academy? You know, we all love a scouser in the team. No, I think he gets all the credit he deserves, um, to be honest with you. I think just goes to show... You know, the Liverpool production line at, at that point at, at Melwood was unbelievable. You know, we had Robbie Fowler coming through and then not too long after Steve McManaman and then Gerard and Carragher and Owen. So, yeah. you know, I think the 90s was a good time for Liverpool's academy. But just look at the goals. he scored. And it wasn't just the goals. It was the type of goals he scored. He could do everything really. Score of his head, left foot, right foot. And obviously, until current Liverpool player Sadio Mane broke his record. He had the quickest ever hat-trick against Arsenal. So I, I think he gets all the credit he deserves, um, Robbie Fowler. I think he, during that time, especially in the 90s, I think he dragged Liverpool to to somewhere where they probably shouldn't have been really in the league. Yeah, I think um, if, if you look at Robbie Fowler's career, it's sort of similar to Michael Owen in that like it started off with such a bang. He was this incredibly gifted natural finisher. Um, playing out front for Liverpool, um, you know, as a young kid, as as uh, James pointed out, scored one of the fastest hat tricks in Premier League history against Arsenal, held the record for ages. Like he was a phenomenally talented player, but similar to Michael Owen after him, he just tailed off with um, uh, with injury issues. And obviously, like I say, two thousand and one was his final full season with the club. He actually left um, in oh one oh two, went to Leeds, but. 2001 was his 2000, 2001 was his final full season. And he went out on a high, 17 goals in all competition. So even though his stock was waning a little bit, um, he still contributed massively to, to that treble win. Yeah, he was just a huge factor. I think, again, we've spoke about it before many times on this on this uh, anniversary podcast, where the balance of youth and experience was so vital to that Liverpool team. I mean, you know, like you say, he started in 93. And then if you go through to the... 2000 and 2001 season he was you know been in the first team for seven years at that point which yeah. you probably forget yeah. he, he was still you know, just before his 30s at that point um so he, he was still still relatively young striker um but but yeah I think his leadership as well and he'll be captained a lot of those games and captain does in the FA Cup final him and 
Jamie Redknapp lifted the trophy at the end, but I think his experience um, in some of those big games, I think he scored the way at Charlton on the final day of the season to help secure top four. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was pretty huge what he did that season. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's not going to get the same attention as Michael Owen did, obviously. Like, Michael Owen was this golden child of it, not only Liverpool, but English football. Um, whereas Robbie Fowler, like, he'd always... Most of the time through no fault of his own, I think, um, courted controversy, like, you know, with the, the accusations about him doing drugs and being a bit of a... I mean, like, he probably was a bit of a party animal, let's be honest. But, um, but I don't think he was ever held in the same esteem outside of Liverpool, um, unlike Michael Owen. And I think that did contribute especially to him falling out of favor um a little bit under Gerard Houllier um you know because Gerard Houllier he was he was known for being such a um uh such a hard ass but like um uh when it came to players going out and drinking and that sort of thing like Robbie Fowler was you know he was one of the spice boys he was known for going out and having fun and that sort of thing. And that just really isn't a Gerard Houllier player. But, you know, he was still a phenomenally talented player and he made a huge contribution to the uh, to the treble season. Yeah, I think he was just so naturally gifted in terms of finishing as well. It's something that it's, you know, you can, you can practice all you want and practice is obviously massive and hard work is, you know, basically 50% of the game, but he had the 50% of talent as well, particularly when he, you know, he was in and around that 18 yard box. How do you, we compare him to other forwards we had at the time? Obviously Michael Owen, we talked about there, but Emil Heskey as well, who we've done a show on before. All three very different types of forwards. Do you think they all complemented each other quite well in the various combinations we saw during that season? Yeah, I think they did. I feel a little bit sorry for Robbie Fowler that season. I don't think he probably got the game time he deserved because of obviously how well Michael Owen and Emil Heskey worked. Like you said, we've spoken about it on a previous anniversary about Heskey where he would do all the dirty work and he would link all the play up. And you know, it was just slightly just a different type of player to Robbie Fowler. And I think when you've got Michael Owen at the same time, um, you if you started Michael Owen and Robbie Fowler, two similar type of players, I think those, some defences would have found it a little bit easier to defend against. But I think when he came in, I think, you know, he, he just showed his class and his experience, really. And I think that's why you know, th- th- this team went on to be so successful during that you know, 12 months. I think one of the benefits of Fowler is that sometimes um, you need a game breaker. Like Mike, Michael Owen and Emil Heskey, brilliant players they were. They weren't the types to just do something in sane out of the blue like you know a, a shot from outside the box or a you know a hard to execute volley or something like that like both were I'm sure very capable of it and Michael Owen in particular showed that he was capable of it on occasion but I feel like out of the three if you wanted a player to come up with something special Robbie Fowler was going to be the striker to do that um, and that sort of maverick nature um, in his play as well as um, reflected his personality, I think. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he scored some really, really special goals for Liverpool, not just in that season, but previous as well. Um, if anyone wants to look at a truly amazing goal of his, watch his um, his goal against Mark Bosnich's Aston Villa. Um, I think it was in the 1998 season or something. Incredible, Scott. Incredible shot. And 
when you just look at the sheer number of goals he scored, he actually scored 163 Premier League goals, which places him in the top 10 in eighth place and the highest ever Premier League goal scorer. I think Harry Kane recently overtook him to take seventh place. And you think that, you know, the strikers that have played in the Premier League over the years, that is, you know, that surprised me personally. And I'm wondering if that would surprise a lot of people who made that goes to show just how underappreciated he perhaps is in, in this country. Yeah, I was quite, I'm quite surprised now you've said it. I think it's because if you look at his Liverpool career, the first stint was only seven years, seven and a half. And he wasn't at Leeds for very long. Then he went to Man City, which isn't the Man City that we know. It was a, it was a yeah. struggling Manchester City side. And then he came back to Liverpool. So I think if you, you know, if you work it out, you know, he's, he's going getting 20 plus goals every single season. You know, and I think what we've become... Uh, you know, accustomed to now is that's the norm. That's what's expected of a striker when you sign them these days. Is you know, we sign a striker for fifty million, you must get twenty plus goals a season. But I think a young lad to come through the academy and to save Liverpool a fortune instead of going out signing a striker, I think he's very undervalued. And I think just because of the time with the likes of United and Arsenal um, dominating that era with their strikers, I think that's how he gets overlooked. Yeah, I mean, like, before he started to fall out of favour, his goal-scoring record was absolutely ridiculous in the Premier League. Like, I've got his statistics here now. In the um, in the 94-95 season, he got 25 goals. 95-96, 28 goals. 96-97, 18 goals. I mean, like, these are world-class figures that we're looking at here. There is no doubt about it. He was just a, a truly incredible finisher. And I think Liverpool, um, when he left, and then not too long after, you have Michael Owen go. I think he was the first of that sort of group of really special number nines to leave the club. And yeah, we were the worst four, I think. And then you contrast that with only 26 caps for England. Um, and it seems a bit a bit ridiculous, really, when you think of the goals he scored that, and how England around that time, you know, late 90s, early noughties, were really kind of you know, basically failing at tournaments, let's be honest, international tournaments. We think he's a victim of around the time he was playing England had a lot of a lot of strikers you think you know going from Alan Shearer and Teddy Sheringham through to Mike Owen and Wayne Rooney yeah 100% I think you know Alan Shearer was the best English striker in that you know that, that decade by a country mile and then he retired was it after the Euro 2000 so you think that maybe Robbie Fowler might get another chance but then obviously there was the likes of Andy Cole and and players like that. So he was always going to find it hard to get in. And then by time, some of the bigger players did decide to retire from international duty. Up steps, a fresh-faced 18-year-old Michael Owen scoring that goal against Argentina. And I mean, he probably thought to himself there and then that it wasn't it wasn't going to happen for him. But we've seen a lot, a lot of good players who haven't got the international recognition they deserve. I mean, look at Jamie Carragher, arguably one of the best defenders the Premier League seen. And he never got a chance for third crack at the whip because of Rio Ferdinand and John Terry. So really do feel sorry for him. But again, it was just a golden generation, as everybody likes to call it, that doesn't win anything. But yeah, um, I think that sort of halted his, his international career. Yeah, I mean, he just, 
I mean, as James said, he just came in at a time where England had great strikers coming out of their ears. Like, you know, you've got Alan Shearer, Andy Cole, Michael Owen. Uh, towards the latter part of his career, you have Wayne Rooney, like, and then you have all the other strikers in that sort of tier below them as well. Um, Teddy Sheringham, for one. I mean, yeah, there were just a ridiculous amount of strikers. And again, I think that sort of... Uh, that image issue that he had for a while, I think would have halted his progress as an England striker for a while, unfortunately. Um, you know, even though Sven Goran Eriksson <laughs> didn't mind going out, didn't mind going out for a cheeky pint every now and then either, I don't think. Absolutely. Um, and then obviously, as James said earlier, he had spells at Leeds and Man City before coming back to Liverpool in around 2006 for a bit of a swan song. Um, came in the January of that year and you really kind of stay for 18 months or so. What do we remember of him returning from that time? He seemed to obviously have lost his pace a bit, but his kind of natural killer instinct was still very much there. My first memory when he came back, I think he made his debut against Birmingham. He scored, he scored like an overhead kick in the last minute or the last five minutes. And uh, I remember listening to it on the radio when the commentator was going crazy and then it got disallowed for offside. So <laughs> I think that just sort of summed up how it was when he came back. I mean, don't get me wrong, he scored some really good goals um, and he was important to the team in terms of penalties, etc. But I think that was the time with Hicks and Gillette where Liverpool was sort of counting every penny and seeing what was the best offer they could get at around that time. And um, yeah, I think it's fair to say his second stint wasn't as good as his first, but um, nevertheless, you could see in, in certain situations, he still had that goal-scoring touch. And I think even when you lose your pace, you still know how to score goals. Yeah, I mean, he, he was he was never going to come in and be the Robbie Fowler that he was, you know, 10, 11 years prior to that. Like He was a experienced head in the dressing room, someone who could come in, post the occasional goal, um, you know, a calm head in European ties, which is a, a big thing um, for Liverpool. Um, yeah, I think that it maybe wasn't the best for his legacy for younger fans, maybe those who hadn't seen him play um, in his younger years and their only real memories of Robbie Fowler are playing in that sort of return stem for Liverpool when his powers were very much on the wane. But, you know, it was great to see God come back to Anfield, even if it was just for a short time. And his final kind of, not appearance, but his final moment in a Liverpool shirt was that the 2007 UEFA Champions League final against AC Milan, obviously the one we lost a couple of years after Istanbul. He was, he was um, I don't think he even made the, made the bench that, that, that day in 2007. Um, it was kind of a sad end, really, to Fowler's Liverpool career. Do we think that that was Rafa being maybe a little bit disrespectful to a club legend, or we know that Rafa's very cold and he's he's not he's not one for you know sentimentality and is very much you're not good enough for my bench, um, so you don't make it. But either way, for me, it was it was kind of a bit of a bittersweet end to Fowler at Liverpool. Yeah, I, you know what? I didn't expect him to start in the game. And I, I didn't really expect him to come on, even if he was on the bench. I am surprised he wasn't even named as an un, you know, in, in the squad you know, to be part of the team. Uh, but like he said, you know, Rafa nearly pushed even Gerrard out the door. So does it surprise me that he was cold towards Robbie Fowler? Not really. Um, but I mean, this was before the AC Milan team that would be 
in Istanbul was a good team. This was a team that Kaká was all you know had more experience. This was this was a better all round AC Milan team in terms of the players that were young in Istanbul were a little bit older. Um, and I just think you know the one thing that Rafa loves is European competition, and he loves his tactics for a European tie. And I think that you know Robbie Fowler was probably never going to get a look in really for that, which which is sad if you know. Obviously, that's the case, but yeah, sad way to end. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it's a bittersweet ending. You don't want to see a club legend bow out, not being in the squad with his side losing a Champions League final. But at the same time, if we're being realistic, how like against that AC Milan team, I would not have backed the Robbie Fowler at that time to be the one to make a difference for us in that game. And I think that. Rafa, he let's be honest, he has he before that he had no romantic connection with Robbie Fowler. Like, you know, he had no um ties to the club before he became manager. There was no, you know, sentimentality there. So I, I would have been very surprised if he had made the sentimental choice and you know brought him in. Like this isn't a final league game or something like that. This is a Champions League final. There's no room for sentiments and I I don't think it's disrespectful. I, I think that Robbie himself would probably feel disrespected if he had been brought into the squad through charity. At the end of the day, he's a professional footballer and he wants to be making a contribution. If he didn't feel that he could do that, I seriously doubt he would want to be in the squad ahead of someone who he thought could win the game for Liverpool better than he could out of some sense of nostalgia or um or charity from Rafa. Yeah, and you think at that time you had like of Dirk Cow and Peter Crouch who maybe were not as talented as Fowler at their absolute when Fowler was at his absolute peak, but at that stage of their careers, you know, that Dirk Cow and Peter Crouch were very good good players for Liverpool, I think we can all agree on. So I think it makes sense. Um after Liverpool he kind of his career was obviously on the down, um, he went to Cardiff and Blackburn in England, and then he went spells abroad. Currently, Robbie's working as a manager in India, and he's also had spells in management in Thailand and, and Australia as well. Can we see him ever coaching in the UK? I think he might have expressed an interest in doing it, but getting these jobs are, are kind of difficult, aren't they? Um, what, what do we think? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him manage over here, and I, th- I think he, you know, obviously for family reasons, etc., he'd probably really want to manage over here, but like he said, it's it's a cold industry at the moment, cutthroat in terms of management. I mean, if you lose six games, that's it. You could be out of your job where I think he might enjoy, you know, the sun at the moment in the Indian Premier League and enjoy uh, maybe not having that amount of pressure on him. Um, but, you know, listen, he's, he's he's been under some really good managers in his time, you know, like Zafoulier and um, Rafa Benitez. And I'm not even going to say Stuart Pearce, but, you know, he's... <laughs> He's been under some, you know, really good managers. So he's probably got a lot to pass on. He's probably picked up a lot. And I think he'll probably maybe look back on his managerial career if he's only stayed in those sorts of leagues as maybe could he have pushed himself a little bit further on. Um, and I wouldn't like him to sort of live with any any regret, really. I think with him, um, just from watching him manage in Australia, um he did a really good job with Brisbane Raw. He um, he made some good signings, brought some players over from the UK. But as is his way, he managed to piss off quite a few people. Um, 
when uh, when he was in Brisbane and he ended up leaving the club under a bit of a cloud. So I feel like he's not a company man, which is going to make it difficult for him to get a job um, towards the top areas in England. Um, I'd like to see him come back, but he's got he's got quite an affinity for um, Asian and Australian football. He spent a lot of the end of his career in that part of the world. He clearly likes it. Um, uh, in that area, and he, you know, you always see him on preseason tours and stuff like that. So it, I, I would be, I would be surprised if he didn't try and come back to England to do some coaching. But at the same time, you know, he's got a long, long, long time in coaching before he thinks about retiring from it. Um, uh, and yeah, I think that if he wants to hone his game in Asia before trying to come over to the UK or Europe then, yeah, I think he's perfectly able to do that. It was very interesting to see where, where he goes. We've seen a lot of kind of big-name players try their hand in management and not quite work out, but best of luck to him if, that, if that's the path he wants to take. Just before we go then, guys, just kind of final words on Fowler's overall legacy at the club. I think overall it's going to be a player who probably deserves to be recognised as one of Liverpool's best strikers in the last 20 years or so, probably you know, me in the conversation as one of Liverpool's greatest ever number nines. Um, probably didn't win as much as what he should have done for a player of his talent, but again, I just think you, a little bit like a Michael Owen, was a great player, but just came through at the wrong time where the Liverpool squad didn't quite match where he, where he was in terms of his ability. Um, but yeah, I think we can all look back on Robbie Fowler and say he's probably one of the greatest players that have come through the academy um, alongside like Sir Michael Owen and Steven Gerrard. Yeah, I I can only echo that. He's a, he's nothing short of a legend for Liverpool. You don't get referred to as God for nothing. Um, you know, one of the best finishers to ever play in England, let alone for Liverpool Unfortunately, through various factors, um, his peak was not as long as it should have been. But I don't think anyone who's ever watched Robbie Fowler will tell you that he was a boring player to watch or that he was, um, you know, nothing special. He was capable of scoring every type of goal from the two-yard tap-in to the 25-yard thunderbolt into the top corner. Um, He had... (laughs) <laughs> one of the best left feet to ever appear at Anfield. And um, yeah, I think he will be not just as part of this travel winning team, but just as his whole Liverpool and career outside of Liverpool, he'll be remembered as both a Liverpool and a Premier League legend. And so he should be. Yeah, completely agree with all that. And I think it's been summed up nicely in the past where they say there's like a lot of kings in football, particularly in Liverpool. You've got King Kenny and there's an Egyptian king at the moment, but <clears throat> there's only ever been one one god. So I think that says speaks volumes, really. Um, thanks, James and Max, for your time this week. No, nice. thanks for having us again. Always a, always a pleasure, my friend. And we'll be back very soon for another episode of the Anfield Central podcast, where we'll be taking another look at one of the heroes of 2001. Until then, goodbye. Well, that's a neat crossing. It's not a great header from Unsworth, but that's a fantastic volley from Fowler. What a goal! He was almost in the air when he struck that ball. Look at that. That's how to volley a ball.